Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Former President Trump is facing his second impeachment trial in the Senate. He's being tried on one article of impeachment, incitement of insurrection, for his role in the January 6th violent takeover of the Capitol. In Trump's Senate trial, House impeachment managers have spent much of the week arguing that Trump falsely claimed he won the election, that he stoked frustration among his supporters for weeks, that he encouraged the rioters, and that he didn't take action to quell the unrest once the Capitol was breached. Trump's defense will argue that Trump did not directly incite the riot, that a president can't be tried after they leave office, and that Trump's words are protected free speech. How the Senate ultimately votes after hearing these arguments is likely a foregone conclusion. The trial is unlikely to result in a conviction. But some of the arguments being made in the trial get at the core of a president's responsibilities in our democracy. We'll take a look at two of those arguments here. First, we'll look at the argument from House impeachment managers that Trump's failure to stop the mob was a dereliction of his duty as president. Then, we'll examine the argument from Trump's defense team that Trump's speech leading up to the January 6th events are protected free speech. We're delving into both of these arguments to clarify the duties of a president during crisis and to understand how free speech applies to the words of the commander-in-chief. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. We'll start by examining a key argument the House impeachment managers have been making in the Senate trial, that Trump's failure to stop the riot was a dereliction of presidential duty. First off, I think one thing that's important to note is that the House impeachment managers want to make a case about a long course of conduct by the former president. That's Rosalind Helderman, a political investigations reporter for The Washington Post. It's not just about the speech he gave that morning in their case. It's about everything he did leading up to that speech, everything he said in that speech, and then how he acted that day once the mob was set loose on the Capitol. If you want to look at his whole course of conduct, what he does after he finishes his speech and goes back to the White House becomes quite important. And so that's what they're arguing here, that once the images of violence began on TV, you could see the Trump crowd crowds surging against the metal barricades, trying to make their way into the building. Then on TV, you saw that the House and the Senate had had to go into recess because these rioters were in the building, that Donald Trump didn't do anything. He did not swiftly tweet. He did not swiftly speak to the nation. He was not involved with the calls to bring out the National Guard. And part of what the House argued yesterday is if you look at the few things he did, the tweets he sent, they were equivocal, they were timid. In some cases, they expressed some level of support for what was going on. 
So what are Trump's lawyers saying about Trump's reaction to the riots in real time on January 6th? So I expect we'll hear more about that when they uh, begin to present their case. What we've got from them so far is just in writing. They did not discuss this in depth. They included one footnote. And in that footnote, they claim that he was horrified when he saw the violence. They claim that he acted swiftly. And then they sort of half quoted the couple of tweets he sent that day. He did in one tweet say, stay peaceful. And he did in another tweet say, go home. The House managers yesterday in their presentation uh, really emphasized those tweets and looked at everything he said. And there was a video he also tweeted out late that afternoon in which he, he used that phrase, go home. But he also said, we love you. You're very special. And they also noted that Donald Trump is not someone who doesn't know how to tell people to take action. They noted that he said over and over and over again, stop the steal, stop the fraud, you know, when talking about his lies involving the election. He could have said, stop the violence, stop this, but he didn't. He said, stay peaceful at a time when we could all see on our televisions that they were not being peaceful at all. Reporters at The Washington Post have recreated a January 6th timeline of Trump's actions. Rosalind explained how Trump started that day. On that morning, the president was excited about the rally that he had called for the ellipse near the White House, but angry at his vice president. He had sort of created this idea that Vice President Pence could personally overturn the election during this process where the electoral uh, votes were going to be counted. And he was still pressuring him. He was tweeting publicly about it. And our reporting shows that he actually called the vice president at his home at the Naval Observatory before Pence leaves to go to the Capitol to try one more time to pressure him, you know, do this thing. And Pence tells him on the phone that he does not plan to do so, uh, which puts the former president in something of a sour mood. He's buoyed, though, when he sees the size of the crowd that he had summoned to Washington. He watched the warm-up speeches that preceded his own from the White House quite intently, was really monitoring that event and then headed out to a VIP tent that was set up next to the stage where there's some video footage of him really watching intently to see the size of the crowd on the monitors. Those crowds were forming for the Stop the Steal rally, and there was a permit for the event. The permit officially said there would be no march from the ellipse to the Capitol. The notion of a march was in the air. It was in publicity for the event. A lot of people were talking about how they were going to, you know, march on the Capitol. And our reporting shows that Donald Trump was very taken with that idea. He liked the notion of the drama of this crowd headed from the White House to the Capitol to put pressure on Congress. And he especially liked the notion that he could lead the crowd. He would walk ahead of the crowd as they marched to the Capitol. The problem was the Secret Service said no, and so did his aides. They said this is a bad idea, we have security concerns. So they had already decided this was not going to happen. Even so, he mentions it, he ad-libs it in his speech. He tells the crowd he's going to walk with them, even though he never has any intention of walking with them. And indeed, when his speech concludes at 1.10 p.m., he goes back to the White House as the crowds are surging towards the Capitol. By the time Trump finishes his speech, there are already people pushing against the metal barricades at the outer perimeter of the Capitol complex. Uh, So you have Trump back at the White House having just finished his speech. You have the congressional process beginning and you have the crowds starting to 
push their way into the building. We know that Donald Trump likes to watch TV. He was watching this intently. He spent all afternoon watching TV. And in fact, we have some reporting that one reason why it was so difficult for the people out of panic calling and trying to reach him to ask him to take more swift action, one reason they had trouble reaching him is that he was too distracted watching this unfold on television. Trump's defense team insists that Trump was horrified by what he saw on television. The Washington Post's reporting shows otherwise. Our reporting shows that his initial reaction was to be pleased, to be pleased at what he was seeing because it had delayed the vote certification process, which was the primary thing on his mind, and to be confused somewhat that people around him were not similarly pleased. We do know that his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, people in his office started pushing quite early around 2 p.m. They started preparing a statement and wanting the president to say something, but it takes a while to get him to do it. In fact, our reporting shows that at some point, Meadows goes in to see the president in the Oval Office to try to get him to intervene. And as he is headed into the Oval Office, Meadows' own staff begs him to to make this work, to intervene with the president and says to Meadows, they're going to kill people. They're going to kill people at the Capitol. He needs to get the president to do something. They're going to kill people. So did the president do anything? Did the president deploy resources to help at the Capitol? What was his role there? You know, there is a long delay that afternoon that happens before the D.C. National Guard is authorized to reinforce the D.C. Police Department and the Capitol Police Department. I think we don't yet know everything about the details of why that delay occurs. What we do know is that there were a lot of people trying to make it happen, and President Trump does not seem to be one of them. There was a statement put out by a high-level military official that the House impeachment managers highlighted in the first day of their presentation that begins by listing all the people he had spoken to about this issue. The House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, the Vice President, that statement did not list the President's name. And, you know, to the best of our reporting, we have found no role that the President played in actually calling out or deploying reinforcements to help secure the Capitol. More than three hours after the siege of the Capitol began, Trump releases a video. He records a video and tweets it. Our reporting shows that there were actually three videos recorded, and that one was the one that was uh, perceived by his staff to be the most palatable. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We don't know uh, what made it better than the other two. But that video is pretty equivocal. I mean, it does include language saying, go home, stay peaceful. But much of the video is the president, even in that moment, talking about how the election was stolen, talking about how he knows the pain of these people. He knows they're hurt, that no one's ever been treated like this before. So he's continuing to sort of sympathize with their cause and even, you know, potentially raise the temperature in this video that's supposed to be him telling them to go home. And of course, it sort of famously now concludes. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. 
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Since this is Can He Do That, the thing I really wanted to understand is whether there are real legal expectations for what a president does in a moment of crisis. What exactly is the president's duty and how is dereliction of duty defined? Is dereliction of duty itself actually a legal term? Not really, no. That's Lindsay Chervinsky, a presidential historian who studies the early development of our political institutions. It can be for the military, but that's obviously a very different set of questions. So when the president takes the oath of office, they swear or affirm that they will defend and protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. That's a pretty vague thing to promise to do. And dereliction of duty isn't really included in that oath. So when we then think about what the president's duty is, it can get a little bit confusing because the president doesn't really indicate any of those details when they're taking office. Okay, so there's not codified steps a president has to take defined by law to do things like quell a crisis, for example. Correct. So One would, you can make a pretty good assumption that based on the oath, they're going to defend the Constitution. That means if there is a war that breaks out, for example, and there's a very clear enemy, then the president will do their best to defend the nation against that enemy. But that's about as far as we can draw the very obvious conclusions from that phrase. Are there moments in history that you can draw on to help us understand whether the president's actions here are a dereliction of duty? Have there been similar moments of failure to act by past presidents? There are two historic parallels that are particularly helpful in this regard. The first took place in 1814 when James Madison was president and the United States was at war with Great Britain. And Madison was a very traditional small C conservative. He didn't think that the president should use all that much authority or power, including when it came to warfare. So he took a very hands off approach which meant that the army was sort of leaderless. And that culminated in the British marching on Washington and burning down the White House and burning down the Capitol, which we've seen some conversations about recently, because the last time there was an invasion force in the Capitol prior to January 6th was, of course, in 1814. And Madison was accused of not doing his duty to protect Congress, to protect the Capitol, and was very unpopular for the remainder of his term. The second interesting parallel, I think, would be James Buchanan. 
And he was president in the 1850s in the lead up to the Civil War. And as the southern states started to secede after the election of 1860, which Abraham Lincoln won, Buchanan didn't do anything as the states basically left the Union. So he didn't do anything as literally there was a threat to pull apart the country. And he was accused of dereliction of duty by just allowing it to happen. What were the consequences for those presidents? Well, there weren't a whole lot of immediate legal consequences. Madison was very unpopular, but the Democratic-Republican Party went on to win the next election because there was really only one party at that point. He didn't you know, face any sort of impeachment proceedings or legal proceedings, although he is considered generally one of the you know bottom 10 presidents because of that behavior. And Buchanan similarly didn't face any legal proceedings or impeachment proceedings because it happened so late in his term. So for both of those, the only real ramification was the judgment of history. While the judgment of history remains to be seen, the judgment of the Senate will come in a few days. And as a presidential historian, what do you think this moment in history, a second impeachment trial for a president, can teach us about the American presidency? I think I have sort of two takeaways. The first is that impeachment has actually been a really bad tool for holding presidents accountable in the past. In general, impeachment doesn't really work because it is such a political tool or it has become such a political tool. I don't believe that it was ever intended to be such a partisan act, but that is what it has become. And so anytime that there has been accountability, whether it be for people like Warren G. Harding, who had an incredibly corrupt administration, but then died in office, or Nixon, who resigned and then was pardoned, most of that accountability has come either through additional legislative reforms later to try and make sure that a similar thing can't happen again, or in history books. And that's not actually really all that much accountability. So in some ways, it's sort of a continuation of this process. And I think that as Americans, we have to think a little bit more about how we should hold the president accountable, because that is just another person. It's not, you know, a, a godlike figure or someone who is above the law. On the other hand, I think that President Trump's actions have been unparalleled. No president has ever denied the outcome of an election. No president has ever tried to overturn the outcome of an election. Even in the Civil War, they accepted the outcome and then just tried to form another country. And no president has ever encouraged and applauded and said, I love you to people who have tried to attack Congress. So if there was ever a time when impeachment should be the tool, I would think that this would be it. And so I don't think there's a whole lot of surprise about what the outcome of the impeachment proceedings will be. But that, as a historian, is very disappointing. Trump's defense team hasn't formally argued their side yet, but they have filed briefs and shared opening remarks. And from those materials, we know that one argument they plan to make is this. Trump's words at the Stop the Seal rally are protected by First Amendment free speech rights. They're going to make the argument that essentially when you look at what the things the president was saying, that it is heated political rhetoric of a kind that is protected by the Constitution. That's reporter Rosalind Helderman again. You know, it's an argument designed to draft on Republican Party concerns about so-called cancel culture, that he should be allowed to say what he wants. He thought the election was stolen. Who are Democrats to tell him he can't say those things if it's what he believes? So can the president say whatever he believes? 
Is everything a president says considered protected political speech? Or might his speech cross the line at some point? Here's where I turn to a constitutional law expert, Fernita Tolson. I am vice dean for, for faculty and academic affairs at USC Gould School of Law, also professor of law where I specialize in constitutional law and election law. I asked Fernita to start with the basics of free speech law. What kinds of speech are protected by the First Amendment? So political speech receives the highest level of protection. It goes to the heart of what the First Amendment is about. The marketplace of ideas is probably the most famous metaphor, right? The best way of getting ideas out there is to allow a lot of speech and let the marketplace filter out uh, quality speech from speech that is of lesser quality. But there are tiers of speech. So commercial speech, for example, doesn't receive as much protection as political speech. But generally speaking, that doesn't mean that one can say whatever you want if it's politically motivated, if there's a risk of violence. There are uh, lines that the Supreme Court has drawn in order to prevent uh, speech that would result in imminent violence from being protected by the First Amendment. And so to be clear, it's hard to draw that line, to draw the line from speech that's uh, political speech that receives the highest level of protection from political speech that might result in violence. What is not protected by free speech? Shot and fire in a crowded theater. <laughs> People love to to use that, that metaphor, right? Uh, so speech that could result in violence, speech advocating violence that could potentially, you know, lead to violence is not protected. Even hate speech gets protection, but hate speech that advocates violence against a particular racial group and then leads individuals to commit violent acts against that racial group, for example, wouldn't be protected. So it's a very fine line. It's a very fine line. It's a blurry line. To go even further into this, are lies and misinformation protected by free speech? They are. Lies and, and misinformation receive some free speech protection. That doesn't mean you can't be sued for defamation. Defamation is a tort where if you tell a, a lie about somebody and you harm their reputation, they can try to get civil damages from you. Okay. But to be clear with all of this, we're talking about a legal standard, which is different from what goes on in an impeachment trial, right? Absolutely. When people talk about their speech being protected by the First Amendment, it's usually in response to maybe a criminal prosecution where they have engaged in speech that resulted in some type of violence and they're claiming that their speech should be protected by the First Amendment, that their speech was not the proximate cause of the violence that resulted. So in the context of an impeachment, the reason that the First Amendment is a bit of an ill fit, because impeachment is not a civil or criminal proceeding. Impeachment is a political proceeding. So because it's political, impeachable conduct is whatever the House thinks is a high crime or misdemeanor and whatever the Senate is willing to convict for. And so a First Amendment defense doesn't really work easily in this context because one can be impeached for things that are not crimes. And so that's why the First Amendment is a bit of an ill fit here and why uh, a lot of people believe that it does not apply in the context of impeachment proceedings. And even so, Trump's defense team is, is arguing that it does. They're saying that his speech can be protected by the First Amendment. Is there any sort of legal interpretation where there's room for that? Is his speech protected by the First Amendment here? I think that separate from the question of whether or not the First Amendment applies to an impeachment proceeding, because I do think that we don't have any clear precedent on this, right? This is uncharted waters. One can have a conversation about whether or not the president's comments are protected by the First Amendment just as a general matter. And it's hard to say. It's really, really difficult to indict and convict somebody for engaging in seditious speech, which is speech advocating the overthrow of the government that results in violence. It's a really, really difficult case to bring. But I do think that there's an argument that even if the First Amendment applies to impeachment proceedings, 
the senators in their roles as jurors could find that he's not entitled to that defense. Because if you look at his comments on January 6th and you view them in the broader context of comments that he's made over the course of 2020, challenging the election results, claiming that the election is rigged, advocating that there's no situation in which Joe Biden could win the election honestly. He's primed people over the course of the year to believe that the election would be rigged if he lost, leading to January 6th, where he's making these comments to this crowd that's been listening to him over the course of the year, and then they ultimately charge the Capitol. So I, I think it's entirely possible that the senators could find that you know, and those senators who are inclined to think he is entitled to a First Amendment defense, even that's not clear. But if they do think that, they still could conclude that the First Amendment does not protect his comments when viewed in their broader context. You know, there was this analogy that was used by House Manager Jamie Raskin in his opening remarks, where he talked about how it's illegal to yell fire in a crowded theater, but that's not even what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is if the fire chief set loose a mob on the theater and encouraged them to light it on fire. And then instead of calling in the fire department, dithered and delayed. And then the question is, can that guy be fire chief ever again? And that's the question they're discussing. So Roz, we haven't seen Trump's legal team really begin the bulk of their arguments yet. But do you expect that this free speech argument is where the defense team will focus a lot of its time or most of its time? I think that's going to be a, a big portion of their case. As part of that, I think we're going to see a lot of clips of times when Democrats have used heated political rhetoric, at times when they have said things like, we have to fight like hell. And the defense is going to argue, what's the difference between what they said, you know, even maybe some of the impeachment managers themselves and the things that Donald Trump said that morning. The other half of their argument that I expect we'll continue to hear quite a bit about is their contention that the Constitution does not allow for the conviction of an office holder after he has left office. You know, the structure of the trial is that they discussed that on the first day and they had a vote. And so you would think that would be in the past. That vote has already failed. But I would expect that we're going to continue to hear it throughout the defense arguments even so. In this episode, we look at these two arguments being made in a historic second impeachment trial of a president, and we've really tried to understand the nuance of these core pieces of our democracy, the duties of a president in a time of crisis, and our free speech protections. But I'd love to hear from you. Are there parts of this trial we haven't covered here that have required you to delve into a piece of our democracy you thought you understood or, or one that is facing new challenges? I think this trial really gets at sort of the fundamental duties and responsibilities of a president. With the House managers arguing that Donald Trump was sort of derelict in the base responsibilities of a president to protect the peaceful transfer of power, they argue that this is exactly why the founders created impeachment for a president who does not respect the core tenets that if you lose an election, you pass power peacefully to your successor. And I think we're going to be thinking about this notion of peaceful transfer of power and what's the president's responsibilities to uphold it for a long time to come, no matter what happens in this trial.
This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. And because I know that a lot of people who listen to this show care about the American presidency, I wanted to let you know about an event coming up. President's Day is this Monday, and I know a bunch of you are big fans and aficionados of presidential history. If you want to test your knowledge, my colleague Lillian Cunningham, who hosts the Presidential Podcast, and Can He Do That producer Arjun Singh are holding a presidential trivia event on Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's free, it's virtual, Plus, there are prizes and special guests delivering the questions, like General Colin Powell. If this sounds like fun, you can sign up at the link in our show notes or on my Twitter account. I hope you sign up and enjoy the event. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh with new logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 